0: In what we're doing now, we're getting to a feel of the world that is neither organic nor mechanical. Simply, what it is. We don't know the contrast, just as we don't know the contrast voluntary involuntary. we don't know the contrast organically. Welcome back, folks. This is Meditations in Molotovs. I am your host, Vince Emanuele. You are listening to the Progressive Radio Network, where you can find this show and myself every Monday at 2 p.m. East Coast time. That's 11 a.m. on the West Coast. So what are we going to talk about today? We've got all kinds of things to talk about. Um, one of the first things I was going to mention and what I think is uh, interesting you know people had asked me why I wasn't having more guests on the program in the past I hosted a radio program that was a local program but also podcasts out so people of course around the world were checking it out and it was a great program I had a lot of fun Uh, the name of the program was Veterans Unplugged I'm sure a lot of the people who listen to this program are aware of that program and the program ran for I believe about two and a half years, three years. And I interviewed dozens of people, actually well over uh, probably a hundred people, maybe a couple hundred people over that time frame. It was a program that was happening, you know, it took place once a week and so on. Nonetheless, the reason why I haven't had more guests on the program, other than folks I consider close friends and so on, is because I wanted to, carve out a space to talk about issues from my perspective there's it's you know it's hard you you spend a lot of time reading you spend time reflecting you spend time speaking with friends and mentors and colleagues and allies and so on and all of those experiences and all of that knowledge obviously influences one's point of view Or how you're seeing the world, how you're interpreting events, how you decide to respond to those events. And so with this program while I will still have guests on the program as I mentioned uh, previously and as we've had guests on the program previously a lot of what I wanted to do was to finally have uh, a certain platform or, or a time frame to talk about these issues and to talk about what I've been learning throughout the years. And to sort of come into my own in terms of what am I thinking about these issues, not you know, can I quote other people who are thinking certain things about these issues or can can we look at things from a perspective that's already out there, but to develop your own perspective. And to me this is the essence of learning, this is the essence of what we really should be doing as individuals within a society. In my thinking, we should be spending our time thinking critically about these issues and about ourselves so anyway to get to more substantive things and I was thinking about I recently wrote an article I think I was published on August 5th so yeah this was this was published on the weekend edition of Counterpunch it's called liberal anti-war activism is the problem There's a certain number – well, let's let's back up here. The gist of the article, so if you want to check it out, let's just back up a little more. If you want to check out the article, go to Counterpunch or just Google my name, Vince Emanuele, and liberal anti-war activism is the problem, and you'll find it. It received a great response. I was very happy with the response to this article shared over 2,300 times, as I'm looking at on the Counterpunch page. And according to my phone this morning when I checked in on the article, there was over 1,000 people who were talking about it on the Facebook, or on Facebook, on the Facebook, <laughs> nonetheless. Yeah, I thought that was great. You know, it's good. It's getting out there. You know, I, I don't think that I, – I guess I shouldn't be surprised, but I am surprised. And what's not coincidental is that every time I write an article, That I think is uncontroversial. Many other people find it to be very controversial. But then also, people thank me. I mean, I received, let me check here, I think 183 so far emails from people who took their time, some lengthy, some very short. Thank you for the article, Bob Mitchell from Washington. You know, that's some of them. Some of them are going to take me, you know, <laughs> maybe an hour or two to read. Um, the vast majority, however, have been very positive. So of the hundred and oh, eighty-three, 83 probably by the time the show's over, over a, two, a couple hundred emails that people will send with regard to the article or today's show, 99.5% of them have been positive which tells me something now my friend roberto as i was speaking with him the other day said that i shouldn't be surprised that this is an issue that ruffles some feathers this whenever you talk about so-called identity politics whenever you talk about liberalism whenever you talk about the ways in which non-governmental organizations specifically nonprofits function people get upset well i mean look folks again of course you're going to get upset. People are going to get upset. I'm going to get upset. Other people are going to get upset at articles, at movies, documentaries, positions they don't agree with, points of view they're not familiar with. Of course. There's nothing wrong with that. I don't the, – the people out there who are looking for, peop, for a 100% agreement with everything that someone says are very lost – And not understanding the point of why the hell we're here to begin with, folks. Okay. So not to harp on something we've talked about before, but, you know, we're only here one got one shot at this thing as far as we can tell. So you should think critically. You should be willing to engage with new material. You should be willing to adjust the ways in which you think about these issues or your life or how to behave in the world, etc. That's one of the beautiful parts of being human being. And having a brain the size of the brain that we have. So for the folks who are upset with me about this article, that's fine. As uh, Joshua Shepard... A person I don't know that well, but someone who I've spent time with in the past, we've had a time to talk and you know hang out and so on, but not not on a significant level, I would argue. Wrote a response on liberal identity and anti-war politics, a response to Vince Manuel's articles. It was sort of a sub. Headline is, this is what I hope will come across as a thoughtful response to two of Vince Emanuele's recent counterpunch articles, one on identity politics and another on the liberal anti-war movement. I know Vince and respect his commitment to his very developed sense of ethics. Vince comes from regular folks and speaks from a place that is much more familiar to me than the anti-war left. I think Vince is onto something big here, even if he may have bruised some feelings. So again, folks, no big deal. If you don't agree with me on this article, write a response, send me an email, tell me why, I'll respond, and that's it. We can move on. There's other issues. Today, I do want to focus on the anti-war movement. As I posted in social media, I was going to focus on why there isn't an anti-war movement. I need to address the questions that I posed earlier when I was promoting the today's program why isn't there an anti-war movement in the United States what would an anti-war movement look like in the 21st century and how can we go about building one well in my thinking a lot of this starts with values but wait let me actually back up let's go through so the summary actually one second let me let's go back here And I'll give you a a quick summary of the article from Counterpunch. And then I'll read Joshua's response and simply mention a few things about that. That way we can move on to the sort of bigger questions that are brought up in the article. The gist of the article has a lot to do with ideology. I didn't use the term. I don't think I actually used the term once in the article which is interesting <laughs> so if you could decode the sometimes very jumbled and vague articles that I write and I write them that way some articles of course you I sort of have to follow the you know sort of an academic guideline thesis points summary etc but a lot of times when I'm writing I just sit down and I have no outline I have no notes Of course, I will look up information online, but 99% of the time, I have no outline, no notes, no pre-written anything, no nothing, not a title, just some jumbled ideas, and I start writing about those topics, and we see what comes out the other side. Sometimes it's good, sometimes it's not. Sometimes it's excellent, sometimes, eh, I think it's whatever, but... That's the point. For me, that's how I write. That's how I come up with material. I know everyone has their own method. A friend of mine who writes fiction spends an enormous amount of time writing notes and outlines and ideas and just papers and notebooks filled with ideas and and, uh, descriptions of characters and so forth, different plots, different ideas. Some, everybody does it differently. That's something else I would be interested in hearing about. So for those of you who are out there who write, who create music, art, send me emails or talk to me on social media about those processes. Those things have always been tremendously interesting to me. How people create things and what does their process look like? Everybody is so, there's so many different ways of going about it. And i Quoted Hunter S. Thompson in the beginning of my latest article because he's one of the, one of the people who have had a uh, tremendous impact, a sort of disproportionate impact in my growth as a young man, becoming politically conscious, questioning my values, reevalu reevaluating what my place was in the world, what I wanted to do. And at that time I was in the Marine Corps, I was 19, 20 years old, eating a ridiculous amount of psychedelics and drinking in a ridiculous amount of alcohol and smoking a ridiculous amount of pot and snorting and swallowing everything that can came across my path. Well, that works for some people, for other people, I know, became religiously involved went through sort of a spiritual awakening sometimes outside of the religious context and as they would describe it a very spiritual context and a spiritual experience so I know people who are straight edge veterans who rejected those substances and so forth and devoted their life to peace and justice from a completely different angle though with very similar goals. I find those things interesting. How people can perform similar tasks, can be interested in similar things, and yet go about it in such a different way. That would never get old for me. So the quote from Hunter S. Thompson is, liberalism itself has failed, and for a pretty good reason. It has been too often compromised by the people who represented it. Now, it's funny that I use that article because I don't actually completely agree with that I'm sorry, use that quote because I don't actually completely agree with that quote. I think liberalism has failed not primarily because the people who represented it were compromised or that they compromised liberal values, though that sometimes or often happens. I would argue, as I say in the article, that the core ideological foundations of liberalism namely individuality and nationalism seeing one as a member of a nation-state and although we are of course technically members of a nation-state many of us myself included as i mentioned in the article do not identify as americans would like to not identify as americans I would like to identify as I note, possibly as a global citizen, maybe a human being, but I definitely do not identify as an American. The American identity and the ideology that surrounds that identity means very little to me. So that is what was discussed. I mean, I also discussed here, Let's. I'll read a certain section here. So this is from the article. Liberal anti-war activism is the problem. I live in a Rust Belt town in northwest Indiana. Most of you obviously know that. Hence, most of the people I interact with on a daily basis are not radical activists or political organizers. These folks might attend a local political or cultural event or even vote in the primaries. But they're not full-time activists. They don't spend their days reading Tariq Ali and Arundhati Roy, though they should. These are people who wake up early, go to work, usually for shit pay, come home, if they have one, eat some dinner, usually fast food or frozen meals, and watch Netflix or ESPN. Their realities and interests are dramatically different than the people I met in the anti-war movement, particularly those working for NGOs. Several years ago, at a strategic workshop in Chicago, we spent the first two hours of each day talking about pronouns. That's right, pronouns. Now, is there anything inherently wrong with discussing gender identities? Of course not. But we were attending a strategic workshop for an anti-war organization, not a lecture on gender and civility. It became clear to me that identity politics had infected the organization I was working with at the time. But where did this ideology come from? I guess I did use the word ideology in the article. <laughs> San Francisco, of course. Many of our members attended anti-oppression workshops where they talked about privilege and collective liberation. Of course, 95% of the people conducting and attending those work, these workshops were white, upper class, highly educated, and firmly isolated from reality. Yet, here they were, back in Chicago, telling me about privilege and questioning whether or not I was truly a good person because I didn't understand what cisgender meant. If anyone reading this essay ever wondered Why more working class and poor people don't join anti-war organizations or attend leftist political events, well, now you know. Because the left is an effing weird place. Instead of educating people about the connections between militarism and austerity, empire and capitalism, workshop facilitators had people talking about pronouns and doing breathing exercises. I guess that sort of shit might fly in Portland or San Francisco, but not in the Rust Belt. And speaking, I'll continue to read a little bit from this article. I actually like how it reads out loud. And for those of you who won't read it, at least you'll get a little sense of what was talked about before I talk about this response. Speaking of the privileged and highly educated, isn't it interesting that the people who, would, who argue for interventionist policies are often people who have the proper educational and cultural pedigree? Here, I'm thinking of the Rachel Maddows and Charlie Roses of the world. The humanitarian interventionist isn't a steelworker or a bartender at the local pub. Why? Because that bartender or steelworker's son or daughter could very well end up fighting those interventionist wars abroad. They have some skin in the game. Unlike the many professional class liberals and societal managers who make absurd arguments about the merits of American exceptionalism and hegemony. One of the more interesting dynamics of the 2016 race has been Trump's double-speak on foreign policy. On the one hand, Trump makes absolutely insane comments about nuclear weapons and so forth. On the other hand, Trump occasionally sounds like an isolationist and or anti-interventionist. Now, do I believe a word Trump utters? No. But what's interesting is the fact that large portions of the GOP base, primarily white, working class, and poor people, are no longer buying what Uncle Sam is selling. Their sons and daughters have been ravaged from the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, with more veterans committing suicide than died overseas. The people who live in small-town America are the Americans who've sacrificed the most since 9-11, and for all the wrong reasons, namely nationalism, revenge, greed, and power. To me, this anti-war sentiment, however jumbled, unprincipled, and unsophisticated it may be, is something to tap into. Without question, large swaths of the American public, especially Sanders and Trump supporters, are fatigued from almost 15 years of nonstop war. The next step is to use this sentiment to organize and mobilize a new anti-war movement. The only way this will happen is if the left drops its pretentious bullshit and learns how to talk to regular Americans without getting offended. And that includes some of Trump's supporters. While most Americans were focused on the Khan family and Donald Trump's inability to keep his mouth shut, Obama launched his latest attack in Libya. The White House claims the U.S. will regularly drop bombs for the next month. Unsurprisingly, there was no debate, no congressional approval. The U.S. is bombing Libya, and there's nothing anyone can say or do about it. That's the sad reality we endure. Meanwhile, groups such as Vets vs. Hate and opportunistic liberals protest Trump's bigotry but remain utterly silent when it comes to Obama and Clinton's many war crimes and atrocities liberal groups have little to say about the links between US Empire and climate change refugees aren't even mentioned Afghanistan is an afterthought Libya and Syria might as well not exist and not a word about civilian casualties moreover vets vs. hate reinforces the false notion that veterans are heroes yes Plenty of veterans sacrificed, but not for democracy or freedom. We killed and died for oil companies, geopolitical interests, and banks. And the Democrats share as much responsibility as the Republicans. The U.S. is the richest and most powerful empire in history. And for the last 50 years, we've been killing peasants around the globe. That's honorable? In the end, people who want to dismantle the U.S. empire, libertarians, greens, socialists, communists, anarchists, had better get our shit together and drop the sectarian nonsense, find our courage, and form organizations that aren't beholden to wealthy donors or the NGO complex, because we're running out of time. And neither the planet nor humanity can endure another decade of liberal anti-war activism. To read the rest of the article, and there's plenty of it, go to Counterpunch or Google Check out Liberal Anti-War Activism is the Problem. Now, as far as any response is concerned, the only response that I came across or that was sent to me was written again by a gentleman that I've known for some time, Joshua Shepard, on a blog that is called End of Empire. And the article is called On Liberal Identity and Anti-War Politics, A Response to Vince Emanuele's Articles. Joshua writes, I read something you wrote a while back railing against identity politics. I didn't know how to respond then, but I'll give it a shot now. I don't think an anti-identity politics platform fully recognizes the role and importance of cultural genocide within imperialism. I do not speak to the patronizing uncritical deference that has been partially cultivated by the NPIC, the nonprofit intellectual complex and embraced by ignorant white liberals who are completely uninvested, using them as their political trump card in some holier-than-thou gainsmanship. I am more interested in the efforts of non-white communities carving out space in a white supremacist nation. This, to me, in terms of value, takes precedence over an ethically bankrupt liberal system of patronage. Liberal establishments trade cash for the inherent value of real people's movements in order to stay morally afloat. So let's go back real quick. I don't adhere to any sort of anti-identity politics platform as such. There is no platform, there is no manifesto, there is no ideological structure through which or in which I interpret the world that has anything to do with an explicitly anti-identity identity politics framework. My argument is that identity politics has taken place, has taken the place, I'm sorry, of more substantial and substantive forms of politics. To put differently, there are plenty of people who, t- in today's world, including liberals, by the way, who can talk about any number of issues such as cultural genocide within the context of imperialism and white supremacy. Yes, I, absolutely. There's plenty of people talking about this. There's, in fact, there's more people today talking about n- what non-white communities are doing and how to better work with non-white communities, again, in whatever that means. Now, we have to be very specific. Is anyone or am I opposed to non-white communities carving out spaces in a white supremacist nation? Of course not. I and mean, I don't think that that has been argued or that I would argue otherwise in any of the number of articles that I have written. So how do you save a culture when your community exists within America is a different question. I don't think that that question – as Joshua writes, what comes to mind are indigenous people trying to save their language, often with only a couple speakers left or none at all, which requires serious ling- linguistic support from academies. This support cannot survive racist academic institutions without a demonstration of cultural value. Enter the nonprofit. It is not enough to uh, dismiss identity based nonprofits out of hand. They have made a, a deal in a rat maze with no exit, rooted in their deepest hopes and dreams, to dismiss those says more about us than it does about them, that we often do not understand says more about our ancestry than it does about our efficacy. No, I again, I, I think we're talking about two different things here. So using a nonprofit, so for indigenous people to use a nonprofit to save their language, if indeed that's the best way to do it, I'm assuming that I can find plenty of indigenous activists that would argue otherwise. Yeah, and this is, so let's get to the core of some of this. The the core of some of this is that people have to use their brains and actually think of alternatives to the NGO complex. The idea that the NGO complex, like capitalism or like the police, the modern police forces or the modern military, the idea that these institutions can remain as such and that they will simply... Uh, In their current state, and that they will simply be reformed and turned into better institutions, which is essentially, I think, what Joshua is saying here. Or he's at least, excuse me, he's at least arguing that the nonprofit or nonprofits fill a very valuable role. Well, in some cases, I guess that's true. Now, the question would be if the nonprofits didn't exist, could people find, or even oh, let's speak in reality here, the nonprofits do exist. They pose more problems than they do solutions. This is true. I don't think anyone would argue otherwise. Nonprofits have been around for several decades now. It's been growing to an absurd amount, where in the anti war organization that I've talked about, we had people being paid absurd amounts of money not to do much with their time, and other people who were paid a pittance and work their asses off. And then of course people who didn't get paid at all, volunteers, which is, I think, a model people need to be thinking about. Because now there's see, this is this is the other problem here. People want to have their cake and they want to eat it too. So people want, you know, this this is part of the new neoliberal identity as well. And this is part of greenwashing. This is part of uh, this neoliberal activism, what Chris Hedges calls boutique politics. And again, this is what I'm putting forward here in terms of uh, liberal identity politics and the ideology here is nothing new. We have uh, people from Adolf Reed to Francis Fox Piven to Chris Hedges that have spoken very critically of this sort of politics. And of course... It, w- the most amazing part about this is that so much of the left can't pull their heads out of their ass to see that what resonated with tens of millions of people with Trump and Bernie's campaigns – okay, let's stick with Bernie's campaign for now – was a message about class politics. That's not to say, <laughs> that's not to say that of course there aren't other – the, the, um, what is the hot academic term that all the liberals use? Intersectionality. Yes, there's racism within empire. Yes, all of this exists, of course. What we're talking about here is what the average person in the United States actually thinks. So if you think the average person gives a fuck about Caitlyn Jenner's identity more than they give a fuck about whether or not they can pay their rent or whether or not they can send their kids to school or whether or not there will be schools in the future— or whether or not there will be a planet in the future, you are out of your liberal mind. This is the problem. This is the problem. <laughs> this is what I'm getting at. What I'm and, and the problem with Joshua's essay is that it actually is not it, it is a demonstration of why people don't pay attention. Because again, you give Joshua's essay to the average person, and they're gonna say, What is he talking about? What are they talking about? So he's he, also, he writes here, I have a hunch that your frustration with the anti-war organization that will remain an elephant in the room is that it has shifted from a broad-based organization to a vanguard organization working at the frontier of our collective understandings. This, my friends, is the most absurd, absurd line of the entire response. A vanguard organization? A vanguard, so so what has t- <laughs> so the organization essentially doesn't even exist anymore it's a shell of itself and it's and it should be and in fact it actually deserves to be disbanded at this point because it's kind of a shame what's happened over the years nonetheless the idea that this organization is a vanguard organization working at the quote frontier of our collective understandings unquote is Oh my! This, uh, you know, my friends. It's already one minute past 1.30, so I shouldn't, you know, we should drop this conversation because it's when you get to this point of the essay, it's actually a waste of my time. Um, and again, this is, and, and, you know, I respect Josh as a person, but as an activist, I don't think Josh has done much. And this is part of the problem too. There's a ton of people who want to talk about these issues who haven't spent the time necessary to have the perspective necessary to actually have a substantive conversation about this. So him talking to me about vanguardism, which he mentions is not for everyone and should face a critique, but that without vanguard, we are without growth, that we are now lacking what we are now lacking. What we are lacking now are broad-based anti-war organizations. <laughs> so, the, so you can't build a broad-based struggle Because you're not good organizers and because a lot of them, people on the left aren't good organizers and because they don't know how to talk to people. So then you, you say, okay, well, we can't grow the organization as a broad-based organization. So now because we're not good organizers and because we've been completely unproductive and unsuccessful in most of our efforts, we will now call ourselves a vanguard organization. This is, my friends, this is the kind of shit that the average person sitting at home doesn't give a flying fuck about. This is why people don't pay attention to the anti-war movement, to leftists and so on. That's ridiculous. And anyone with any sense will look at this and laugh, especially this article, this last, or whatever, this first sentence within this last, second to last paragraph in the article. It's ridiculous. That's sad you know because we have people who we have people who are so warped by this ideology that they can't even have honest conversations anymore you know a vanguard organization my god these people can't organize themselves out of a wet brown paper bag and they're trying to call themselves a vanguard oh, and now without putting this into a broader context it sounds somewhat petty the problem is as the over 200 emails i've read are checked out in the last couple days, mention, this is worldwide. I just got a request from an, uh, a progressive left-wing newspaper in Spain that wants to do an interview with me because the person who read the Counterpunch article was so taken aback by how universal the problem is. And, of course, when I was in Australia in the fall, the same thing is true the sectarianism these old goofy marxist ideologies I mean, whether you're a trot whether you're a leninist whether you're a stalinist a maoist a socialist a communist oh my god is it is it banal is it it's so fucking boring and it turns everybody off i mean anybody who's a normal person listens to that kind of crap and they're immediately turned off And now, I don't know the history. People have told me the history before. I could get people on the program who could talk about this history. But the anti-war movement is rife with this kind of shit. I mean, the anti-war movement, unlike a lot of the other movements, or, well, actually, let me back up. The anti-war movement, like a lot of other movements, has sectarianism. Unlike a lot of other movements, the core of the anti-war left of people who consider themselves anti-war are mired in sectarian craziness. So if you look back at the Bush years, what's interesting about the Bush years is that the moveon.org folks and the folks from the Answer Coalition were essentially the two biggest anti-war groups that mobilized the most amount of people in those years. So you think about those two groups. Those two groups, to me, are the most absurd silly groups that you can imagine. I don't take either of them seriously. Does Move On do decent work? Sure, I guess you could argue that the Answer Coalition does decent work. Okay. But for the most part the Answer Coalition and, and and or I'm sorry, yeah, for the most part the Answer Coalition is filled with ideological lunatics. I think those are the Bob Avakian people, RCP Revolutionary Communist Party. Completely out of their minds. You'll find them at any political event um wearing clothes that look like they came from the Goodwill and handing out newspapers for a dollar or two dollars a piece and smoking home rolled cigarettes. Uh, that's where you'll find uh, those people. And uh, <laughs> I'm joking, but I am also being honest, <laughs> which is part of the problem. Anyway, the Answer Coalition and Move On. Move On, of course, many people are familiar with. Yes, and like I said, they do actually more decent work than the Answer Coalition, more substantive work where they're actually fighting for things that matter making a material difference in people's lives. And yet they are the most sort of unprincipled bunch of liberals, sort of the typical liberals that I mentioned in portions of uh, my latest essay. And those are the two groups that are essentially running and funding the anti-war organization, along with, might I add, many wealthy individuals, extremely wealthy people. That's where the money comes from, the anti-war organization's. It's where it's always come from. It's where it came from under the Bush years, and that's where it comes from now. And the only reason Vets vs. Hate has any money to begin with is because George Soros has given him $200,000 and Jane Fonda has given him another $15,000. So the group I mentioned in the article, Vets vs. Hate, that I sort of go after and what started this response because there's some overlap with veterans who are members of Iraq Veterans Against the War, which, as I mentioned earlier, essentially doesn't exist anymore. Veterans for Peace... Vietnam Veterans Against the War, Vets vs. Hate, like a lot of these groups vote vets and so on. A lot of members are members of these other organizations as well. So there's a lot of overlap, or at least some overlap. But these these organizations are completely fragmented. These organizations are shells of their former selves, and even when they were at their peak, could... you know, and I say this as someone who's been a member of these organizations, or at least some of them for almost 10 years now, at the peak of our power, if you could even call it power, we could barely get anything done, let alone now. I mean, now these veterans are relegated to running around at Trump events, talking about how bad Donald Trump is. And of course, Donald Trump's a fascist. And of course, we should protest Donald Trump. And of course, we should make him look like a fascist Uh, The fascist maniac that he is, of course, who would argue otherwise? No one that's a decent person. That's not the point. The point is George Soros and Jane Fonda and a bunch of other liberal millionaires and billionaires are giving money to groups like Vets vs. Hate to use them as tools to get Hillary Clinton elected. Now, all of that is fine, in my opinion, actually. Okay, is it fine for me to be involved with that? No. Would I ever be involved with that? No. Um, is it fine for other people? I guess so. You know, I'm not gonna argue that people can't do that. Just be honest about it. Just be honest and say, hey, look, we're a, a liberal group that's out here to get Democrats elected. We're gonna badmouth Trump to try and get Clinton elected. That's fine. But don't pretend and don't use all of this false rhetoric about, oh, you know, we're heroes, and as someone who sacrificed so much for his country or her country, I—it's—it's uh, a—it's a shame to see Donald Trump up here uh, tarnishing the name of these veterans and the and the oh my god the honor and the sacrifice and get get the fuck out of here. This is what I thought we were trying to teach people over the last ten years. I thought part of what we were trying to teach people was number one. The United States, as Martin Luther King pointed out 40 years ago, a lot of leftists like to quote him, but a lot of leftists don't adhere to his values, nor do I think they actually pay attention to what he was saying, or else they wouldn't speak in such silly terms, calling veterans heroes. The United States is the greatest purveyor of violence in the history of the world. There's nothing honorable about serving in the united states military those are the two fundamental things the anti-war movement should be teaching people number one the united states is not an exceptional nation well i guess we could put that differently the united states is an exceptionally violent nation an exceptionally unequal empire but it is not an exceptional place in the sense that many people would say that the United States is an exceptional nation. It is not exceptionally just. We, we, the citizens and people who live within the United States, are not exceptionally free. That's the first thing we should be teaching people. Nobody's doing that. Nobody. I don't think, any, I don't think people have enough courage, to be honest with you, to say or do those things in public and to publicly badmouth the United States in a very honest fashion, but to say it in an honest fashion. I don't see that or hear that from hardly anyone. Liberals, left, progressives, or otherwise. Number two, we should be dismantling and deconstructing the notion that serving in the U.S. military is an honorable thing or a worthwhile thing to do with your time. And the one follows the other, obviously. There is no way to honorably serve the greatest purveyor of violence in the history of the planet. And there's plenty of factual data to get us through that argument with anyone. It'd be a very easy argument to make What Martin Luther King was saying 40, 50 years ago. Especially with all of the knowledge and information and everything that's transpired since 9-11. Those are easy arguments to make. Not to mention the fact that we have more veterans coming home and blowing their heads off. And ODing and drugs and getting in accidents and fights and being locked up. Than died during the wars. Now, the other thing and the third thing and possibly the most important thing that anti-war veterans or so-called anti-war veterans could do is to talk about the impact on the people we are supposedly – our supposed enemies, the Iraqis, the Afghans, people in Libya, Libyans, Syrians. Palestinians, Somalis, and we can go down the list Venezuelans, Cubans, Vietnamese, Cambodians. These are the people who have sacrificed the most. These are the people who have lost the most, lost everything. Not only in some ways their entire way of life, but freedom their lives themselves, limbs, their sanity, generations and generations of war and chaos that have followed U.S. interventions and occupations and bombing raids and drone strikes and assassinations and coups. This is what we should be talking about, and this is what matters to people. What pronouns people use when they're blowing the head off of a young Afghan child turns out doesn't fucking matter to the people who are living in Afghanistan. Imagine that. And you know it's also not a coincidence. Every single email, every single person I've talked to from around the world, whether in person or otherwise, who comes from the Middle East, Western Asia, or North Africa... Or Latin America. Haven't spent much time or talked to anyone in uh, Southeast Asia or, or large portions of Asia. But those groups that I mentioned, every single time one of those people gets a hold of me or talks to me or comes to an event where I'm speaking, they thank me over and over again. Is that a coincidence? I don't think so. I don't think it's a coincidence that most of the people who are upset about these articles that I write about liberal identity politics, about postmodern bullshit, about the fact that most people, uh, you know, about to, anyway, most of those issues. I don't think it's a coincidence that the majority of people who are upset about that are white, middle class to upper class people, completely detached from the realities, not only that I live around. But the realities that tens of millions of Americans are living in, and even worse so, the reality that hundreds of millions of people, if not billions, of people, endure around the world. On the other end of U.S. militarism, so not only is U.S. militarism destroying this nation as we understand, this military Keynesianism spending trillions and trillions of dollars on the empire while we slash budgets at home. The state of Illinois is a good example. I believe in 2012 the state was I don't know what it is now but I know in 2012 that the state was I want to say 55 or 56 billion dollars in the hole in the in debt. Yet the taxpayers in the state of Illinois from 2003 until 2012, had spent almost twice that amount on the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. So there you go. Schools being closed down, after-school programs being slashed or dismantled, healthcare programs run by states being dismantled, Schools being closed, jobs being shipped abroad, grocery stores being closed, civic and cultural centers being closed. Most of the people I'm surround, surrounded by making $8 an hour if they're working at all, or if they can even, you know, if they're finding work in the legitimate sectors of society and not in the black market, putting themselves even at further risk from the prison industrial complex and the draconian police state. And here the anti-war movement is, talking about pronouns in San Francisco, California. My friends, this has to change. This has to change. Now one of the biggest problems that I've seen in the past with the anti-war movement is that it was a very lily white movement. And not working class or poor white people, but a lot of middle class to upper middle class people who come from middle-class and upper-middle-class backgrounds. And is there anything inherently wrong with that? Of course not. You know, one of my favorite writers is Gore Vidal, a number of, an obvious member of the 1%, but also someone who had very good values and very good politics. Amy Goodman's another example. This is someone who comes from extreme privilege, but someone whose work I, or whose some of her work I, I respect that's fine but let's let's talk about what that means not only what that means for the movement but what that means for our prospects of getting other people involved with the movement and that has been the biggest problem Now, obviously who the people who were once involved with the anti-war movement are now gone on many of them but not for very principled reasons you know, we have a lot of people that we used to work with in the anti-war movement who are now helping veterans Again, is there anything inherently wrong with helping veterans? Of course not. But if that's what you do or if that's who you are or if that's solely where you're spending your time and your effort to make the world a better place is to help veterans, I don't have much respect for you. Do I understand it? Of course I understand it. It's the easy route. You want to have your cake and eat it too. People want to be paid to do work that makes them feel good. This is sort of the 21st century model of neoliberal capitalism, at least for the privileged and professional classes. These are people who are paid to feel good. So you can go to work every day and say, hey, well, what do you do? Well, I help veterans. Man, is that amazing. Of course, in the meantime, this person has very little to say about refugees, if nothing to say about refugees. These people have virtually nothing to say about what's happening with Iraqis or Afghans or Libyans, or Syrians, or Palestinians, because they have no courage. They have no principles. They're collecting a paycheck to feel good and to tell people, well, hey, I'm helping veterans out. Well, that's great. That's great. While the world burns. So you can, and see, this is part of what I think is interesting about the new sort of neoliberal ideology as well and how it functions among progressive progressive circles and amongst progressives, is this concept of feeling good central to the neoliberal ideology. So you can work for an NGO, collect a paycheck, and at the same time not really challenge anything, not really challenge the existing institutions, not really challenge any of the dominant cultures or ideologies, but you still feel good because, after all, you're not, you know, you're not destroying the environment like that oil worker, or you're not destroying the environment like that steel worker. Or that guy who's working or that woman who's working on a fracking well. So yeah, you can feel good about what you're doing, but don't pretend as though that feeling good is a replacement for substantive politics where people are actually making difference in people's lives. It's not. Lives that matter. Again, there's plenty of people out there taking care of veterans. Veterans are getting enough attention, in my opinion. Are there enormous problems with the VA system? Of course. Is there enormous problems with the disability system and so on and all this stuff with veterans? Of course. There's major problems, and they need to be fixed. But there are plenty of groups out there working on those issues. You know what we're missing? We are missing groups that are focused on Iraqi lives. We are missing groups that are focused on Afghan lives. That's what we're missing, There's an abundance of groups, including veterans who are trying to save national parks. So, you know, middle class and upper middle class, white urban types and yuppies can go with their kayaks up to the mountains and, you know, trudge around out there and pretend like you're part of the outdoors and then get in your Subaru and drive back to your suburban home. (laughs) But let's be real. The environment is dying. We don't need more groups of people trying to protect national parks. We need more groups of people trying to stop this genocide of the planet. And if you think that's over the top, or if you think that language is over the top, I recommend you listen to Derek Jensen's previous two programs with Guy McPherson and Dar Jamal here on the Progressive Radio Network. His show is called Resistance Radio. And I've long considered Derek a friend, and I've long respected and considered Dar a friend as well. And I'll tell you what. Folks, if you didn't know, you should or if you're trying to ignore it or trying to tell yourself that things aren't as bad as they are, you need to snap out of it because this planet is dying and it's dying and we are killing it. And it's happening fast and we are running out of time. I forget how fast we're running out of time. So all of this taking place within the ecological context should speed things up. In other words when methane gas is being released and the planet is heating up to where everyone living here is like we're in Kuwait or Death Valley, believe me, listen to the words I'm telling you right now. There won't be too many people who give a fuck about Caitlyn Jenner or what pronouns you're using. I promise you that. I promise you that. And I promise you that these boutique forms of politics feeling good and and, and in this... this nonsense about constant identities it's very narcissistic too i find a lot of this to be at least very narcissistic it's all about me 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 how do i identify how do i interpret the world instead of what are the actual objective conditions in the world that people are struggling with like the fact that less than or the fact that three three more than 3 billion people are living on less than a couple dollars a day or the fact that more people have access to cell phones than water huh <laughs> yeah, those issues, those are the issues, my friends, or the fact that we have a presidential candidate in the most powerful military empire in the history of the world that's talked about making the Middle East glow because he wants to use tactical nuclear weapons and doesn't understand why we don't use nuclear weapons now against our enemies. Let a couple of nukes, you know, here's part of the problem too, and I hate to end this show on a cynical note, but people in this country, particularly the white Middle to upper middle class people I'm talking to and the white working class and poor people who have been drawn into this bullshit ideology being pumped out of San Francisco in the Bay Area like so much of the shit that's pumped out of San Francisco in the Bay Area, which also isn't a coincidence. The most oh progressive and liberal city in the United States where you can't find a sandwich for less than 15, 20 bucks. Get out of here. City's a joke. City's a total joke. I wouldn't go back there and spend money if somebody paid me to go there and spend money. Sickening. It's no coincidence that this ideology is being pumped out of the same area. We need less time spent on identity politics, more time among these folks who are interested in organizing to drop the ideology that's been pumped by so many and is, you know, Infecting movements around the world from Australia to Spain as I find out on a daily basis and start focusing on the more substantive issues of the day and how they're going to actually organize people to stop or to break down a thousand military bases around the world because that's what needs to be done and until that's done the planet will continue to die. There will be more wars and I promise you in 5 or 10, 15, 20 years over that time period you won't be able to find anyone who wants to sit down and talk about pronouns because they're going to be wondering how the hell they're going to get food and water. I promise you that. So, on that bright note, I hope this was a good start to your week. <laughs> and, um, we'll continue the conversation, of course, next week. Maybe we'll have a guest, maybe we won't. As you folks know and as you do, check it out. Check uh, you know, the Facebook account. Check out the Twitter account. And make sure you tune back in next week. This is Meditations in Molotovs. You are listening to the Progressive Radio Network. I'm your host, Vince Emanuele, and we'll talk to you next week.